Welcome to season three of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Are you recording? I'm recording. I'm almost done. My phone's been buzzing all afternoon, and I I just have to finish this text message. So you're one of those people who can't go five seconds without checking their phone. Can you just give me a second? I got this notification from Instagram. I think somebody liked something I just did. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, as you know, we have uh, at least all guests and hosts must put their phone on Do Not Disturb when they come on This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. Do you think that was a, like a convincing like acting thing that I just did right there? Because I don't even have my phone with me. Let's just say you don't have a, a future in Hollywood. Ah. I always hoped I did. Well, today was pretty interesting because we had a conversation with Tim Kendall. Uh, Tim was one of the early employees at Facebook and really was responsible for driving some of the revenue strategy and also ran Pinterest. So he's he's a pretty big deal. And uh, Tim's got an interesting perspective because he runs a company now called Moments. And they focus really specifically on helping people understand how they use their phones. Yeah, and I think uh, he, uh, as he discusses during this you know, interview, went through a period where he could not stop looking at his phone. And as one of the architects of, you know, uh, some of these products, he had a really self-reflective moment. And there's something a little bit ironic and maybe kind of enjoyable about hearing technology executives who were big drivers for the things that we spend so much time on today, starting to tell us all that it's actually not healthy for us to do anymore. Well, he definitely talks about that. We, I think we pressed him on that pretty nicely. This was one of my favorite uh, interviews that we've done so far, Yasha. It was a fun conversation. And I think something for all of you as listeners to consider is at what point in time are we all going to, are you individually going to, start to think about our use of technology as something damaging to our health? Definitely. Please enjoy this episode with Tim Kendall, uh, who's an incredibly thoughtful and intelligent guy. Lived a kind of CompuServe version that Apple built, and it wow. was horrible. Like it was so bad, so bad. Or maybe it was my fifty-six baud modem that made the whole thing just a bad experience. Yeah. Could be. Could I was be. a very, very early adopter. I was on like the fourteen-four k baud modem, you know, building four eighty-six DX two computers. Remember the? Yeah, a lot of people yeah. don't know this, but uh, Sunil was one of the first like hardware hackers. He used to. Use his phone and like yeah, that's, ex- click, that's exactly click, click, what I used click to. and get all this free dial-up for <laughs> long-distance stuff because he used to call people all the time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Back to Tim. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so you ended up at a company called Facebook in 2006. Yes. Yeah. How does that How does that happen? So how does that happen? Well, I out of undergrad, I was an engineer at, at Stanford, um, but but somehow got a little distracted or sidetracked into venture capital because I thought of venture capital as like this way that you could sort of like um, play a little bit in sort of this realm of entrepreneurship without sort of like pinning yourself to one particular idea or thing. So I was just Can like Can we a, talk about f- that for a second? Yeah. So growing up in Colorado, I'm not saying that Colorado is not like the hotbed of uh, finance, but yeah. like venture capital, was that an idea that came because of Stanford, because of yes. Silicon Valley? Okay. Yes. I mean, I remember thinking, you know, how... I remember exploring at Stanford the ways in which you could explore entrepreneurship. And in that exploration came about like, oh, the, what are the funding sources of that? Oh, and what do these people who allocate capital actually do? And, and it sounded, you know, on the face of it, I'm trying to like reserve all the follow on judge or 
put aside all the following judgment that's come around the, that whole industry. Um, it, it, like on the face of it, it sounds like such a cool um, and, and amazing job. And so I, I pursued that for a couple of years before I basically got a little bit more clear on what I wanted to actually do with my life, which was to actually build the company versus be more the coach on the sideline. And so that's how the, the sort of that transition is what led to Facebook. Well, so just really tactically, how did you get introduced to the company? And yeah. what was the interview process like? So the, the way I got into, well, the way that I got, I, I got hip to the company, because at this point, 2005, 2006, you're talking about, you know, million users still just a college site with a friendster might win at that point right well actually myspace was really starting to i mean i remember the summer of 2006 after i started uh myspace was a hundred some odd million users and just dominant i mean you you heard and saw myspace everywhere and facebook was just a few million users but tactically um i was taking a course at stanford business school from eric schmidt and eric schmidt had these lunches after the course so the course was every tuesday friday and then he'd say hey i'm gonna have lunch in this room from noon to one anyone can join and i remember the first time he said that i'm like oh my god like i want to go to every single lunch (laughs) and which i did but what was astounding was no like there were one or two other students in these lunches so you literally got to have lunch with eric schmidt for for an hour or two hours a week and so probably like the third lunch, I got the nerve to kind of ask him what ended up not being that hard of a question, but a really important question in retrospect, which was, okay, Eric, you got a gun to your head. You have to leave Google. Where do you go? What, what do you go become the CEO of? And he said, well, there are two companies. This is January of 2006. So Facebook is a few million users. YouTube is, so he says two companies. He says, hands down, I go to Facebook. And if that doesn't work out, I go to YouTube. And YouTube, by the way, That's is like incredible. YouTube at this point is like ten people, and they had just they had just come on the scene with the Chronicles of Narnia, like the SNL skit that had created a little bit of virality around YouTube. So he was, you know, of course, he bought the company for a billion six nine months later, but <laughs> I don't think he could could uh, forecast that. So I got I got in touch with the the uh, actually I had a business school classmate who was friends with Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel already made investment. He was on the board. And I said him to this business school classmate, hey, look, my dream job is to go work at Facebook. Do you think you could set me up with Peter Thiel? So he did. So I went up to the city, met with Peter Thiel, found his fund. Did you any blood? I didn't, I didn't have to. I don't even know what that reference is. Yeah, this is like a Silicon Valley, HBO Silicon Valley reference. Oh, uh, some, okay. Something about now like blood transfusions or if you take the blood of young people. Oh. Yeah. I'll have to catch up on that. Uh, in any case, I did not have to donate blood, but I had this fascinating conversation with, with, with Peter and said, hey, look, I just want to go work at Facebook. Can you just get me into the, to the right you know, set of conversations? And so he introduced me to Owen Van Nata and Matt Kohler, and I went in and met with them. And then, you know, the, there was a more rigorous interview process than I would have expected, but I don't think they're can- quite you know, candidly. I don't think they had a very big candidate pool. And how many people was Facebook at this time? Probably about a hundred. Wow. So okay. So quite small. Yeah. Uh, and what what was it like? I mean, what tell? What, well, what, the job, by the way, was we need a product manager to help figure out what the business model is going to be. Like we think maybe it's advertising, but we could be totally wrong. And we've got a couple of like 
wonky banner things running and we're generating a little bit of revenue we need to generate a lot more revenue and we need someone you know to basically figure out how we're going to make money and so that was the job which i was wholly unqualified for um and so we spent you know i showed up it's by the way it's total it's total chaos i mean it's clear that mark is brilliant it's clear that the product direction that we're going in is is um, revolutionary. So this is the summer in which the team, I wasn't a part of this, the team built newsfeed, the team figured out, oh, let's let's open the site up to open registration. And they were starting to talk about platform and how you could platformize a social network. Very novel and clever and shrewd idea. Um, so it was clear like they were headed in the right direction. But like companies, no matter how amazing they turn out, like they are at that stage, it's just like, so, okay, so then getting just with one specific anecdote, maybe two, what is something that, you know, you can share that people wouldn't have, wouldn't expect to know about Facebook from those early days that, you know, okay, wow, you know, maybe it was a moment that you thought it was going to go under, maybe it was something else. What's a, what's an anecdote you have for us? Well, I'd, the, the one that immediately comes to mind is that we were all, there was fear of real fear of failure and getting crushed by MySpace. And there was sort of underlying that a little bit of faith that like, well, we think our approach is is right, which was approach that was really bet on on technology and authentic identity. We thought that would win out over time, but it sure wasn't clear from the numbers, right? It looked like MySpace was just gonna become completely dominant. So a lot of fear on that basis. And then actually fear from a standpoint of you know, you look at the graph of Facebook and it's this crazy smooth up into the right curve. And we, we had down months at Facebook in terms, or at least, at least flat months, like month on month growth was not increasing. And that's not a good feeling. And I remember there was a designer, there, there were a couple of people who in the summer of 2006 left the company. Wow. And I remember thinking- That was a very expensive decision. That was, a, that was an expensive <laughs> decision. But I remember, and, and one, of the, one of the designers who left was I, I just had this sense of him being highly competent, very wise. And when I heard he was leaving, I thought, oh, shoot, what did I just do? Like, is this a sinking ship that I'm just going to go to the bottom of the ocean with? So, the, gotta, so when, when I, I really appreciate you sharing this kind of uh, common bond of fear. Yeah. And uh, maybe there's a flip side of that, which is about, like, optimism and excitement about the things that you can build. But you've now been with a handful of different organizations that have all had, like, I think interesting paths that they've taken. Um, is that sense of fear, like, a thing that's unique to companies that are successful? Is that the Bay Area, or is it companies in particular? Oh, I think it's a great question. Um, there is probably... It, it seems inherent to entrepreneurship everywhere that there is just a fear. There's there's this really hard balance of, of like fear and self-doubt on one hand and like faith and um, optimism on the other hand. And that you're always – I mean, I feel that in the company that I'm working on now, which is just a, a startup that I'm trying to lead. It is just this – it's the siege of fighting, trying to keep self-doubt at bay – and, and hold faith. So I think it's probably common. It's common to entrepreneurship, um, and it's probably more of a siege earlier than it is later. But I think you raise the, the part of your question that I find really interesting is is it is it more pronounced in Silicon Valley than elsewhere? 
Maybe. Have you lived anywhere else uh, in your professional no, career? No. Yeah. In fact, I joke that it's probably because I it, it probably explains why I don't like Palo Alto. Of the la- of the of the twenty three years I've been in Northern California, I think I'm catching up now because I'm not there anymore. But I think fifteen of them were in Palo Alto, and then like. All of them are within one mile radius of like University Avenue and Stanford. Yeah, good old and University like, Avenue. <laughs> it's, few, just like a, it's just like a, a little microcosm of the rest of the world. There, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like so that. reflective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to ask you since we since we're talking about Facebook, what's your view of the the Chris Hughes op-ed? And um, you know, is there was there any sense in those early days that you're building a company that can influence? election someday well answer the second question first i mean there was and i'll speak from my experience there is no modicum of realization that this tool is going to do a heck of a lot more now now the founders may feel differently because and that's sort of their role right is to think bigger than the, the the guy thinking about the business model but I didn't think it. I mean, I knew it was. I knew it was addictive, in a, in a, and I and I mean that not in a pejorative way. Like we were getting lots of usage, but it really seemed um, like pretty harmless voyeurism and vanity. And it became obviously many many orders of magnitude more powerful. And the and the quick take on the op-ed. Um, I thought it was very thoughtful. There were points in there that I that, that had not occurred to me. Um, I don't. I don't have a good solution. I don't think regulation is realistic. I, I think if it were if it were realistic, and we had the right people who could apply it thoughtfully, maybe that's the right path. But it's not going to happen because it's not going to happen in the U.S. It's not going to happen globally. Incompetence exists in the U.S. government, international government. Like, I, I think it will. It probably will happen internationally, and it, it is happening internationally. Um, I'm. I, I suspect that the, the nature in which it will happen will not be as as thoughtful and optimal as it could be. And then I think in the U.S., it's just it's just way too slow if it happens at all, and it will be even even. Um, less thoughtful than anywhere else in the world in terms of how and, and the way in which it's applied. So I'm just yeah. I'm so not optimistic about I that. I think it will just further entrench the, all of the big companies. Uh, as, as, and so I don't, I don't know if regulation is going to help. But Well, and there, and there, and there be, let me just add, like I, I think their behavior now is, is, this is probably a bad thing. What they're telegraphing in terms of their behavior are in a lot of ways – poison pills against regulation, right? And what, what I mean specifically by that is Mark talking about, you know, very clearly telegraphing, I'm going to encrypt everything across all these platforms. And that is a, that may for some strategic reasons make sense. I think the overarching driver of that is like, if this is all interwoven, you can't break me up. And if it's all encrypted, you can't hold me accountable for any of the content. Yeah, good, good, good insight. Um, 
So I, I don't want to fast forward through your career because it's been an interesting career, but I also I want to get to the work that you're doing sure, sure. You're, you're doing now. But really quickly, the uh, Pinterest, you were obviously you know president at Pinterest, ran product there. And you look at a Pinterest, it doesn't really get much negative press pretty much at all. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the degree of addictiveness of the Pinterest product as compared to Facebook? Um, and you know, and just why Pinterest is essentially able to avoid any and all scrutiny uh, in terms well, of... Well, to be fair, Pinterest gets hammered for having too nice of a culture. <laughs> that, that is, Silicon Valley gets hammered for that. In the world, I mean, no one cares about that outside of here. But, but yeah, it gets hammered for that in, within Silicon Valley. Which is so weird. I know. I know. But it does, it does get hammered for that, for sure. I mean, I think that... I think the reason that it escapes, so let's set, set the addiction piece aside for just a moment. I think the reason that it escapes a lot of scrutiny is that versus a Twitter or a, or a Facebook um, is that it's not really, it, it gets bucketed as a social network, but it's not a social network. So it's much more of a utility or a tool like Google search, which by the way, doesn't, the search part of Google doesn't get a heck of a lot of scrutiny when you think about it in the context of everything. And so it's just a utility for people, and it's not, it's not a tool for really sharing with your friends and family what you're up to or finding out what your friends and family are up to or reading news or doing any of that thing. It's a very individualized tool that's basically meant to, for people to kind of plan what they want to do with their lives, what do they want to cook for dinner tonight, uh, what do they want to do this weekend? What kind of car do they want to drive in a year? What kind of home do they want to live in in two years? It's sort of like this harmless, very individualized experience that just doesn't get them into controversial domains in the same way that a Twitter or a well, Facebook does. I mean, there was the kind of anti, I think it was the anti-vaxxer stuff that yep. happened recently. And yep. Pinterest took, a, I think, a relatively quick and clear position yep. Yep. and then made a move on it. And again, like in a scenario Credit where... To them where Twitter would probably continue to have the same issue today if it was raised six months ago. They didn't. They just yeah. addressed it. Yeah. Like, what, what makes that organization work that way? Well, I think they're growing on this dimension because I, if I were really candid, I'm not sure the Pinterest of four or five years ago when I was there would have necessarily been that deliberate or decisive. But I think they're, I think they're drawing brighter lines and then and moving more quickly against things. So... I, what I would give credit to in that case was the fact that the, the culture and the decision-making has just gotten more mature. And so they're ready to say, like, look, this is a bright line. It's pretty clear this content is is making the world worse. Let's get rid of it. And this is what we're going to say. And I think they're also starting to, and this is a sophistication that comes with a more mature company. I think they see, I mean, and I don't know, I, this is me speculating, I think they see the benefit of being first on these issues in terms of generating goodwill and brand equity, which I think it does. Yeah. How addictive is Pinterest? Relative to, I mean, if you just look at their time spent versus, um, you know, these other platforms, n not, not that addictive. And it's sort of no more addictive than Google search is addictive, which I'm sure there are outliers for whom Google search is a problem. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not pervasive. And really, the company is trying to, the mission of the company or the old mission of the company, I can't remember the new mission. The old mission was to discover and do what you love, meaning we want to help you, Sunil, discover some stuff. And then as soon as you discover that great recipe, we actually want to do everything we can to get you off 
and to take action on it. So almost definitionally, half of the mission of the company is to get you off of their product. Hmm. So let's let's talk about now. Um, you are part of a group of people that are now becoming, you know, I mean, celebrities is the wrong word, but you have uh, Tristan Harris from yeah. Google. You have you, um, and you have Antonio Garcia Martinez to a lot, you know, to some extent, and some others talking about how bad these products are, how bad smartphone usage is. I have two questions: uh, why, uh, and why now? Well, I think the 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 they're probably bundled. Um, my last few years at Pinterest, um, and not because of being at Pinterest necessarily, I just started to see my own personal use balloon. And it was, it was um, coincident with having two young children um, at home and getting home from a hard day of work at Pinterest. And it's like six o'clock at night and I should be in you know, our kitchen or in the living room down on my knees hanging out with my kids and really interacting with them. And I am like in my pantry scrolling through, you name it, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. And I can't, I literally can't stop. I know like intellectually, like exec, like, like higher level parts of my brain, like this is not congruent with my values. I don't want to do this, but like my limbic brain is saying, no, enjoy, enjoy this, like indulge yourself. And like, you, you need a break. And that, uh, cognitive dissonance was 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 a struggle so I was suffering and I thought to myself God I got to get a handle on this and realizing that others might be struggling as well so it was really a, a almost a um, realizing that my psychological health was being impacted probably a lot of others were and you know could there be a way that technology software and others could help people with this so uh, I'm sure you get this often, so I'll just ask the, I guess, the, the questions from the crowd. So, well, you know, you made a lot of money off of this and, you know, you, you built these things that are, so, you know, what it, it just feels convenient, you know, that you would be uh, kind of, it feels convenient and, and easy that you would, <laughs> yeah. you, would be, you would be doing this now. So yeah. what would you say to people who are listening to this who feel that? Well... What would I say? Um, it's probably warranted criticism. I mean, I, I think that I, I certainly have some regret in my role, although it was a, a smaller role than the leaders of the proper company than my role at, at, at Facebook, although I haven't been at the company for almost 10 years. Um, and I think they're the most pernicious example of what's driving a lot of this. And then, you know, um, Really, all we can do, right, is focus on now and what, what we're doing going forward. And so going forward, I mean, I'm funding this thing myself entirely. And uh, so in some ways, like, the the economic exploits are getting, you know, re redirected towards this. And that's goodness. And well, why don't you just tell everybody what it is? Oh, it so is. So, so um I um, now am the CEO of a company called Moment, and Moment's been around for several years. Um, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I acquired the company from the founder, Kevin Halesh, who is now a, a key part of my team and still integrally involved. And what Moment does is, in a phrase, we give people back their time. But what we're basically trying to do is help people understand, hey, you use your phone an inordinate amount, and if you 
don't like that and you don't like particularly the knock-on effects of, of, of that issue, we have some tools and we have some coaching uh, programs that can help you um, use your phone in a much healthier way. Oh, and by the way, you get a lot of time back when you do that. So a uh, couple questions. Let's assume that all of us just kind of let our limbic brains run loose yeah. and choose to do whatever we want. You join the team and are running the team over the course of the last year and moment. Like, what is the learning that you've had? And really specifically, like, what does moment know about how we make decisions on our phones? So I'd say I'd say a couple things. I think one is that um, this problem is a lot like it has so many um, parallels to food in that when you eat when you when you eat poorly, you feel terrible in the medium and long term, but it feels really good in the short term. Oh, and by the way, when you eat a little bit of junk food, it's really hard not to eat a lot more in in that moment. And so their characteristics, of phone usage that are almost completely mimic the characteristics of eating poorly versus eating eating well. Um, the other thing is that, um, that that I can tell you just from looking at our own data is that there's it's a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole in terms of the different aspects of these services and and what's on the phone. And what I mean by that is that what we see is that. Um, the obvious suspect in terms of like the the most um, the thing that sucks the most time from you know you or you or my day is social media. But the problem is that we see, and by the way, I've experienced this myself. You get rid of social media, and something else replaces it because and you've already started eating that way. Yeah. So you start. So you so you get rid of Oreos and you do chocolate chip cookies. Well, what's that? What's the equivalent on a phone? You get rid of social media and you get addicted to news. Yeah. And you get addicted to the browser. I had a uh, peanut butter cups instead of Ben and Jerry's ice cream last night. Just, just right. <laughs> right. So um, you got an organization like Apple, who like as a forget about work stuff as a just as a customer, I like a lot of what they do, and I like a lot of I the story too. that Tim Cook tells right i do too we got a business model that allows for us to make decisions that are generally better for humans than other companies do uh, they introduced something like screen time yeah and you guys have been around before screen time existed yeah like should we trust organizations like apple because of the economic incentives that they have to introduce tools like screen time that are supposed to benefit us as humans or make us happier Dude. He's looking up and thinking, just just giving just giving just people the visual. I mean, when Coke put a label on its can and told you how much sugar you're drinking, did it make you trust them more? I mean, maybe a little bit on the margin, um, but it, but it didn't give you a whole lot. It didn't tell you how how bad the sugar was. It didn't tell you the long term effects. I mean, I think my. Um, bone to pick with Apple is twofold. One is that as it relates to screen time, I think it I think it's a I think they they get credit for taking a step. It is like such a a micro step in the scheme of what they what needs to be done and what could have been done. And in and what I mean by that is that if they were trying to help people who were morbidly obese, what Apple has done is basically chucked them a scale and said, Good luck. And there's no exercise regimen. There are no nutritional guidelines. And, sa and then said, 
you know, hey, we care about this problem. Look, we gave you a scale. Come on, you can weigh yourself. And and so that's that's kind of my bone to pick A. Bone to pick B is Tim Cook and others talk about how their incentives are pure and aligned. However, the bulk of their profit growth is from services. What's the bulk of services? It's the app store. What's the bulk of the app store? Games. What's the bulk of games? In-app purchases of games, which basically completely correlates with time spent. So their profit growth is predicated on addiction. How how bad is it? So uh, just give uh, people a sense of scale, either through an anecdote or data you've seen or whatever. How bad is smartphone addiction, and um, you know where 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 are we headed with this? Like, what's the wor- worst case scenario for me? Well, I think that I think the worst case scenario is we're going to end up in a in in a similar place to where we are with sugar and processed. food food vis-a-vis type 2 diabetes being a, a global, particularly a national epidemic and, and costing us a, as, a, as an economy a tremendous amount of money and killing a lot of people. And that sounds very dramatic from where we are today, but I, but I, think, that's, I think that's where we're headed. If, if you look at the data in terms of what overuse does to our brains, in terms of causal links between overuse and depression and anxiety um, causal links between overuse and spiking cortisol levels which by the way lead to all these knock-on diseases um, I, I think I think we're headed to to a scary place and adults are admitting you know th- two-thirds of adults basically if you ask them in the United States will say I have a problem only a quarter of adults have been able to make any headway through through their own efforts. How old are your kids? Three and four. Do they ever get to use devices? I mean, I could, I could, I wish the answer were no, not at all. They do a little bit. They watch no interact. They don't, they don't use devices in an interactive way. They use them as mini TVs, and they get to watch on Wednesday mornings if they get ready for school at a certain time because they have a late start. They get to watch ten minutes of something. So not a whole lot. And, and, oh, by the way, there was a period over which when we took a longer drive or flights, we used to let them use it, and they became such terrors. The, the medium and long-term ramp, you know, implications or, or result was so bad that we just stopped. It was easier to deal with the siege of a flight and a drive without a device than it was to give it to them. Hmm. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is the... the yeah, once again, the chorus of executives, you know, I think the, the criticism <laughs> is, is, is flatly this, is that, okay, you built this stuff. Now you won't even let your kids use it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, what about the other, how would you respond to people saying, you know, you're, you're an alarmist and this is TV all over again. Um, we, we're just going to settle in. This is the new norm. TV is I, I we hear this a lot. Um, I understand the argument. It, TV is so fundamentally different than what we're dealing with in terms of first of all, TV doesn't go with you everywhere. It's not in my pocket, at least old TV, right? And it's not interactive, and it's not 
in a, in a highly personalized and sophisticated way tuned to me and preys on basically all my vulnerabilities to get me to do things that aren't necessarily in my best interest in the long term. TV didn't really do any of that. Or if it did, it did it so poorly that it was pretty easy to break out of the force field if you wanted to. What do you uh, think about the work Elon Musk is doing with the, uh, uh, I guess now and so uh, some others are with the, uh, with the brain companies. And so um, and I, I figure you would probably know quite a bit about this, Yasha. So go ahead, chime in. I see you laughing. Oh, the, oh, the brain. No, I'm just laughing at you. I'm like, the brain companies. Yeah. That's the next That's the next big thing. Well, I guess I want to take this and go off in a little bit of a different okay. direction, if that's okay. The, the, um, you made a, a comment around addiction and organizations being benefited by addiction. And I, like I go so far as to say, and I don't think this is a hyperbolic, we're, we're in a, we've moved out of the information age. We've moved into like the addiction economy age or kind of where, how you want to frame that. Um, but Sunil kicked off something that I think we think is funny, generally, and that's that oftentimes executives in technology companies are recognizing that something is wrong, and then they're going and spending the time elsewhere. How, do, how does that change from being just a handful of people around the world that have this enlightened understanding of what's going on into general consumer understanding? Well, I, we talk. Again, we talk brain. about this. We talk about this a lot internally, and I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about this. Um, I think there's there are a lot of good people who are being very vocal about the um, the consequences of of this technology and the overuse of it. Um, I, I think that I mean the wonderful wonderful ish thing about food and diet and exercise is that the consequences are the feedback loop of the consequences is very obvious in terms of like our physique and in terms of how we feel it's a little bit more opaque with this because it probably doesn't change our physical appearance so we can't, unfortunately cannot use vanity as a motivator mm -hmm. um, but it does certainly change our state of mind although I think that's a little bit more abstract for people and so I think one of the ways we get there is with research, um, but another way which we spend a lot of time thinking about, we don't have any great solutions here, is, is how can we put a mirror up to you beyond just, hey, Sunil, you spent four hours on your phone, you should feel bad. Yeah. But, you know, ideally it would be you spent four hours on your phone, some of this was, was goodness and actually made your cognitive function higher and you feel happier as a result of it, but these, I mean, almost like, you know, looking at your consumption of food in a given day and giving you a, um, an assessment and an extrapolation of that in terms of the impact it's going to have on your psychological well-being. So you really understand, hey, when I do this, this is the impact in a, in a believable way. That's hard. Yeah, right? So uh, away from like paternalistic language of let me, let me tell you all the bad things that you're doing. Why don't you eat your vegetables? Right. Uh, well, we close with one question. This has been been awesome. Uh, just my, I, I have one idea for you: buy a Super Bowl ad and you know get people to uh, turn off their smartphones for thirty seconds. <laughs> you know, just just remind. That's them. worth four million dollars. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, Yasha. You, just, you really want to be an event marketer? I think that's yeah. your thing. Yo, right? no, no, one no, of no, the biggest yeah. iPhone shut off in the world. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. An iPhone lockout. Um, okay, what you got? You got the last question. Um, what is the app that everybody should go out and install right now that you think is beneficial for them? For their phone, Android or iOS? Hmm. 
I, you know, I don't know the names of the, the, the app that popped into my mind, which I like, but I, and there are a number of these apps and they're probably, if you, if you search for, um, life clock or something like basically something that you, you put in your age and your health and everything basically tells you how much time you have left in your life. And then it gives you a countdown, like a, like a daily countdown. It's like you have this much percentage of your life left. Very fatalistic. It's very fatalistic. <laughs> it's I I it's find grounding, it, though. I find it grounding and 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 motivating. Yeah, I I, I buy that. I totally buy that. I, I wish I gave I had a name. There are many of them out there. Yeah. I mean, I think if you literally search for life clock or countdown, life countdown, you'll something will come up. I think we we all waste a lot of time, and we waste a lot of time because of bad decisions that we're making because our limbic brain is going off and telling us to do stuff that's a waste of time or we're. Or we're uh, too wrapped up in our own vanity. And I think we're delusional. I mean, I'll speak for myself. I'm delusional that I think I have infinite time left. Yeah. Because I think that's just the human tendency. Yeah, we're young. and Yeah. So you guys are fit. I'm not. But we got that going <laughs> for us. Uh, so on the social networks that clearly you spend a lot of time on, um, who are a couple of recommended follows that you would make a oh, recommendation gosh. to our listeners to go spend some time reading, listening to, watching? Um, so three, yeah, four people that I follow on Instagram who I love Brene Brown, um, Russell Brand, um, Sam Harris, and Ray Dalio. Those are all hot tips. Crisp, crisp answer. Those are good ones. Um, how about favorite Pinterest border? Is that a thing? That border? Like, who, what do you call a uh, pinner? Pinterest? I don't know the product. I use Pinterest. I don't know what you call a person who puts pin boards up. I mean, mine's going to be a little. It won't be weird. It'll be good. Like Evan Sharp, who's one of the co-founders, has amazing boards. He's he's he was the co-founder and really the creator of the whole grid design, which is you know one of the big uh, you know foundations of Pinterest. He's an architect by training and just a has a phenomenal eye, and so his boards are beautiful and fascinating cool well this has been an awesome interview one of my favorites yeah i, I second that thank you for spending time with us yeah guy. of course so i'm staring at my phone right now sunil and i'm looking at the moment app in particular well, actually i'm on my lock screen and it says you've had 50 pickups so far today it's three o'clock and you're over your goal of 41 per day so i'm already losing I wish I could say my stats were, were better, but, but they're not, uh, especially if I actually looked at them. But I don't want to look at them because I'm in total denial. Well, I think that like denial thing is pretty real. Like We are constantly trying to like battle between telling ourselves that when we used to watch TV a bunch as a kid and our parents used to say that it was bad, that what we're dealing with right now is exactly the same. But it's really not. No, and I'm glad that we, we touched on that definitely during the interview today. But uh, you know, this this interview isn't meant to be alarmist. We hope that what you take from it is just that you put additional thought every time you do pick up that phone. And, you know, for those with, with families, kids, I, I just am curious to, to hear your, your own internal monologue about how you want them to use phones. We'd love to hear from you. So if this conversation was interesting and you want to talk about mental health and phone use or tech use, hit up either Sunil or I on Twitter. He is Subes01, and I'm Kekis. And as always, uh, if you enjoyed this episode and other episodes of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, we would appreciate if you could give us a review on 
whatever uh, app that you're listening to us on. Thanks as always for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode.